Welcome to the third week of Advent, and so that means the third week of Ruth. Turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 3. If you remember last week, I told you that, that Ruth sometimes places it kind of reads like a play as the characters come on the stage and come off and events happen. And so if, if chapter 2 were act 2 of the play of Ruth, it closes in verse 23 with Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So our, our, our curtain comes down at the beginning of the barley harvest when Boaz has just told Ruth, you can glean here. In fact, why don't you glean here all season? Just keep moving with my guys as they move through to glean it to harvesting the wheat. You move and glean with them. God has provided for them. But the whole harvest season is only a couple months, two, two to three months long. What's going to happen next? The curtain went down with them being taken care of, but now it comes back up and the harvest is over. And so what's going to happen to Ruth and Naomi? So read along with me, chapter three of the book of Ruth. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. He had said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured in six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her, and then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So our curtain comes up. If you remember what Naomi was saying at the end of chapter one, you can see some of the transformation that has happened to her over the last couple months as now she seems excited and interested and looking forward to the future. Now, okay, there's a couple things we need to talk about in this story to understand what's going on. Um, We want to make this a romance because 
it's a story about a couple getting married. Eventually, it'd be a story about the couple getting married and, and having children. And our world, being fairly romance crazy, we want to turn it into a romance. And maybe it was, okay? Maybe Ruth and Boaz are making googly eyes at each other in the field all the time. Maybe he's coming over there to help her pick up things, and they're bumping into each other surreptitiously. Who, maybe, but it's not in the text, the text does not present this as a romance. In, in our world, because all of our basic needs are met, then we look for significance and satisfaction, and we often look for it in relationships. These folks, these folks are trying to eat. They're trying to make sure that they have a roof over their head, that they have food, that they have water, that they have clothing. They do not expect a relationship to fulfill all their deepest needs and desires because they're spending their money and their time and their energy getting that, that low. You remember with the hierarchy of needs? They're at the bottom. Food, clothing, shelter. They're not looking for self-actualization. That comes way the heck later. They are want to make sure that they can eat. We want, to, we want this to be a romance. And it may be. We have no idea how Ruth and Boaz felt about each other or what was going on in this two to three months. All we know is the author doesn't include any of that because this isn't the story about boy meets girl. This is a story about the provision of God. God provided for Ruth and Naomi. When they came back, from the land of Moab with nothing, God provided for them through works, Ruth's hard work and Boaz's generosity. And they've done well. Like, like you see what she says to him. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Perfume and good clothes, these are not basic necessities. They, they've moved up a level. They've made enough money to take care of the basics and have some left over. Perfume especially is expensive in their world. They're doing well for two months, two and a half. Is that going to last them for the next 10 months when there's no harvests to glean at? When there's no food out in the fields that I can just go walk out and because this guy is generous, I don't have to worry anybody's going to assault me. I can just harvest all day long in the edges of his field. I can pick up everything that his people miss, and I can do that in safety. But those days are over. They don't have, she doesn't have that anymore. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, what's going to happen next? Because you don't need a lot of imagination to know what the opportunities are to make a living for a single 20-something-year-old girl in the time of the judges. Ruth has been a contract worker, and her contract is over. And some of you know that. I mean, I've got your names on my board to pray for you because your contracts have ended, and you need another contract. You need another employer. You need a place to go. That's what Ruth and Naomi need. She needs another contract. She needs a way that she's going to take care of them. And Naomi, wow, Naomi swings for the fence. Boaz, we said this here before, it was back in, uh, in chapter 
2, it's here in chapter 3, he's what's called a guardian redeemer. That is a legal term. It's from the law of Moses, which again is probably about 100, maybe 100 some odd years previous to this story. Moses codified what happened to people, what happened to families. Because when they come out of Egypt and they go into the land, they call it the land of Canaan, it becomes the land of Israel. It's modern day Israel and parts of modern day Jordan and Lebanon and Syria. All that land, God divided it up by tribe. God went through and said, okay, here's your borders. Judah gets from this valley to this river. And then Ephraim gets from this river to this river. And Naphtali, all the land was divided before they ever got there. And they were told, when you get there, divide up the land in your tribe by clan and divide up the land in your clan by family. So every family has their plot of land, their fields, their areas that they can farm, they can do cattle, do whatever they want with it. It's their land. And it passes from father to son, father to son, father to son. It moves down through families. It's called your inheritance. So what happens if a guy has no children. It should go to his sons. If he has no sons, it can go to his daughters. They have to marry in their clan because you gotta keep the inheritance in this geographical location. But what happens to a guy like Elimelech who dies with any, there's no children. What happens to his land? How does his land stay in the family? Like you can't even buy land permanently under God's law. Every 50 years, all the land goes back to its original family. When you buy land, you're just renting it. And so if it's 30 years until the 50-year mark, then you're renting it for 30 years. If it's 10 years, you're renting it for 10 years. And it says in the law, set the price based on how many years are left until you hit that 50-year mark. Because every 50 years, all the land goes back to its original family owners. It's their inheritance. What happens when a guy has no kids? There's an answer to that in the law. His nearest, closest relative becomes a guardian redeemer. That means he is supposed to marry the widow, take over the guy's land, invest in it, keep it going, but he holds it in trust because the first son that is born, or if no sons are born, then daughter, the first son that's born to the mom is not the son of the dad. It's not the son of the guardian redeemer. It's legally the son of the man who died. And the son gets the inheritance. So think, when Ruth says to him, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer, this is what she's saying to Boaz. Buy our land. Buy Elimelech's land. Pay Naomi for this land. Invest in this land, make it prosperous, but hold the profits from the land in trust. They're not yours. Marry me and our first son will become the son of Elimelech. And then when he comes of age, he takes all that himself. None of it is yours. I want you to imagine that somebody come up to you and said, my business is failing. It, it, it's collapsing. I, I can't, I, I. Would you please buy my business full price? 
Would you invest in my business to make it profitable? Pay me to be the CEO of my business. And when it is profitable again, give it back to me for free. Would you take that deal? Because that's what she's saying to him. You are a guardian redeemer. You have a legal obligation to make sure that Elimelech's family does not disappear. To make sure his land is not orphaned and somehow parceled up. Parceled up. You, you have a legal duty to do this, to spend all this money and do all these things and know that all that goes to another family. None of that will pass on to any children you already have. None of that will stay in your estate. It will all go elsewhere. Would you take that deal? Because Boaz's response is, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Would you do all these things for us? Spend all this money, all this time, do all this work. Have and raise children who will not legally be yours. They will legally be the sons of Elimelech. And they will inherit Elimelech's land and they will take all the profit you made off that land and they will use that to take care of Naomi and Ruth. Because that's what you need to do. As I was going through, as I was working on this sermon and I'm working through the passage, you know, I wanted to talk about Boaz. No offense, if it were me, this would be the book of Boaz. What a great character. I mean, what, what a Christ-like character that this guy just continually says yes over and over again. He's continually generous. Like, like this is somebody I am really looking forward to meeting in eternity. Like, how did you do this? What, what? You lived in the time of the judges. What did you know? How did you know God like this? Why were you still obeying? When no one around you was, when the entire culture wasn't in, wow, you think things are bad now. Oh my. Again, read the book of Judges. I will not preach on the last few chapters because it's so horrific what is happening to, to God's people. Like, I really want to meet this guy. And as I'm working this out and I'm studying and I'm doing my outlines and all that, I keep wanting to talk about Boaz. And I feel like God keeps telling me, you need to talk about Ruth. You need to talk about Ruth. Think about what Ruth and Naomi are doing. Think, I'm like, wow, I, I, would I take that deal if somebody gave it to me? I just kept feeling like God's saying, you're putting yourself in the wrong character. Stop putting yourself, because I'm trying to understand the passage. I'm putting myself in, okay, what would I feel? What would I think? I, I know the culture. I understand how this works. What would be going on inside of me? I keep asking, what would be going on inside of me if I was Boaz? And I kept feeling as I'm praying, like, no. <laughs> that, what's going on inside Ruth? What's happening to Naomi? They are desperate. What else are they going to do? If you were Ruth... Would you do this? Would you ask this of Boaz? And the answer is no. Oh my gosh, no. This guy has been so generous to them. Would I come back to a guy who has kept us alive for the past three months and be like, 
hey, you were really good at that. Why don't you do that forever? In fact, I won't glean it. I won't, I don't, I won't, even, I won't work anymore. <laughs> you just, just take our family in, take it over, help it, prosper it, cause it to grow and thrive, and then give it all back to Elimelech. Wow. Would I ask that? No. Like, what would I ask? If I was Ruth and I came into this situation, what would I ask? I'd ask Boaz for a job. I'm like, hey, you've seen me. I'm a hard worker, right? How about you make me one of your servants instead of me just following along behind him? She needs a new contract. And again, wow, the options are scarce in her world for a single 20-something girl. They're not the kind of contracts you want. I would ask Boaz for a job. Wow, that's not what she asks him. She asks for the moon. She asks for everything, and she uses legal terms. <laughs> you have a duty. Did you hear him say that later? He's like, yes, I am that guy. You're right. I am a guardian redeemer. Again, it is a legal standing within his family. I am a guardian redeemer, but actually I'm number two. There is a closer relative to Elimelech. Again, we, we don't know exactly his relation. Maybe cousin, something like that. Maybe there's a brother. Maybe there's a closer cousin. We, we don't know. But there's someone else out there that actually, it's his duty. He should be the guardian redeemer. It is both his right and his privilege, but also his duty. And Boaz says, hey, I need to go talk to him. And you kind of wonder, where's this guy been? Like, why hasn't he been healthy, helping Ruth and Naomi? What, what's going on? But Boaz says, I will absolutely do everything you ask. I will either make sure that the guy who should do it does it. That he pays for the land, that he prospers the land, that he marries you, that the children you have are considered the children of Elimelech, that he gives all that back. He doesn't keep, I will make sure that either he does it and if he won't, then I guarantee you, he says, that I will do it. I would never, would never go to Boaz and ask that. I would ask for so much less. And I feel like as, as I've been doing this and I've been reading this and I've been wrestling through this, it's like, no, God, I don't want to talk about Ruth. I want to, I want to talk about Boaz. I like Boaz. Let's talk about Boaz. Like you're, talking, you're, you're putting yourself in the wrong character in the story. Put yourself in the shoes of Ruth and Naomi. This girl's boldness. She's not even an Israelite. She's a foreigner who converted. Her boldness in coming to Boaz and asking him to do what is right, what he should do. I just feel like God has been talking to me because, you know, I knew last week that our mortgage was at $9,000. And I knew this week that people had given money and I paid it off and it was gone. And I just feel like God's been laughing at me about that. So I became the interim pastor of the church, Easter of 212. Only planned on being here for a couple months. We were missionaries. We're gonna go back overseas. The church asked me to come stay when the a uh, previous pastor had stepped down. Like, sure, of course, I love this church. I'm happy to help out. 
couple months later, the elders come back and say, well, we'd like you to stay. Don't be the interim, be the guy. And I say, no, that's crazy. And one of the reasons it's crazy is because this church has over $2 million in debt. I mean, okay, I love the building, don't get me wrong, but two, zero, 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 right? There's a lot of zeros after that number. I don't wanna be responsible for that. Like, I don't wanna be in charge of that. I don't want that on my plate. I don't want that I have to deal with that. I don't wanna have to make the decisions because at the time, our, our, our payments now are about twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000. That's because we refinanced when the rates plummeted several years ago. Um, at the time, it was $18,000 a month we were paying the bank. That was a third of our income. A third of the money every month went to service a debt. And I said, you gotta be crazy. I am not taking that on. But as we prayed about it, as Elizabeth and I prayed and talked and sought God, I just really felt like the Lord told me, I will take care of that. Don't worry about it. Yep, you're right. It's a ton of money. It's not a ton of money for me. <laughs> Two million? Yeah. I will take care of the debt. Okay. <laughs> I mean, who's, you know, you get, a, you get an offer like that. All right. And so I took the pastorate and I started praying. And the debt didn't go away. I prayed for years, all the time, every day. Debt didn't go away. In fact, two years after I got to, like about two years into my pastorate, we couldn't pay the 18 anymore. We didn't have it. And so we started paying only interest. We didn't pay on the principal. I mean, the bank won't let you stop. You know, it's a tight time. We're not gonna pay this month. They're not, they don't go for that. Um, but they were very generous with us and said, well, don't pay on the principal, just pay the interest, you know, which is like two-thirds of that or something. But still... And we keep paying. And all those decisions that I didn't want to have to make, I had to make. Like, who's going to get paid this month? And there were plenty of months when I had to go around and talk to the staff, hey, if, if you don't get paid at the end of this month, are you okay? Can you make it? Right? I mean, we'll catch up. It's not like you're never going to get paid. But, you know, you're supposed to get paid every two weeks. And we paid the mortgage. And so we don't have the money to do the, the middle week I mean, Lord willing, it, right, it'll come in. We'll, we'll catch up. But we don't have it. Is it okay if I don't pay you? There were a lot of months that Elizabeth and I got paid once a month, <laughs> not twice a month. Because that middle of the month period, we paid the bank first. The bank always got it first. And I'm praying, and I'm praying, and I'm praying. God, you said you'd do this. Like, that's what I'm saying to him all the time. God, you said you would do this, so do it. God, you said you would do this. So do it. God, you said you would do this. So do it year after year after year. And then in 219, I go away on sabbatical. This church, you all very graciously, I've been here seven years, very graciously gave me a month off, went off, prayed, what's next? What are we gonna do? And God said to me, it's time. It's time to pay off the mortgage. I'm like, yes, it's time. So I come back. I tell the elders, hey, I feel like God's spoken to me. They pray about it. And wow, you ought, to, uh, you, know, you ought to be grateful for the guys who agree to serve here. Because when the pastor comes back and says, God has said this, they say, excellent, let's pray about that. <laughs> they don't say, oh, okay, let's do that. They prayed for months. We prayed for like three months 
Okay, Lord, is this, is this you? Is this what you're doing? Is this right? We were all convinced, absolutely, this is what we're doing. We got consultants like, this is it. We're gonna pay off the mortgage. And the week we are about to send out the cards, we've been talking about it, we've, I've been preaching on it, COVID shuts us down. And we don't have the Sunday service where we're gonna hand out the pledge card and, and everybody's gonna pledge. And heck, I mean, people are losing their jobs. It's nuts. We're like, okay, we're definitely not doing this right now. So we just tell people, hey, if you decide, there's no cards, you know, there's no obligation. If you decided to give, please give. That's between you and God, right? And wow, you guys started to give. And I'm like, yes, this is it. We said two years. It's going to be two years. And we are going to pay this thing off. We didn't pay it off in two years. And I'm praying. I'm praying every day. God, you told me. You told me you were going to do this. You told me now is the time. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. It's time. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. And you know, when I paid off this debt, I realized that I'd stop expecting God to do it. That somewhere in the last couple years, I had gone from hope, the biblical sense of the word, confident expectation of good, to hope, the English sense of the word. Wow, I really wish that. But who knows if it'll ever happen. Wow, I really wish Jeff would wrap this sermon up. <laughs> yeah, like that's ever going to happen. You can, you can hope in English like that all you want. Oh. So we've been lighting candles. You remember, first week, lit the candle, called it the candle of loss to talk about Naomi's loss. Second week, lit the candle of light to talk about Boaz, both being a light and also that his harvest was lighter because he was being generous to Ruth. And today, we're gonna light the candle of hope. Ruth's hope, her biblical hope. Because in English, hope means wish. But in the Bible, hope means expect. A confident expectation of good. I have been a Christian for longer than Ruth has been alive when this story takes place. I've been a missionary and a pastor longer than this girl's been alive when this story takes place. And she didn't grow up in Israel. She grew up in Moab, worshiping Chemoth or whoever. The only place she could have learned about Yahweh would have been Naomi, her mother-in-law. And then she converts, puts her allegiance and her trust in him. Hopefully she's learning about him in the two to three months she's been back in Bethlehem. But I am embarrassed that this girl puts me to shame. Her boldness, her hope, her confident expectation that Boaz is going to do what he is supposed to do. That God, you know, she says, put a corner of your garment. Literally what she says is, put the wing of your garment over me. Do you remember what Boaz said to her? May the Lord bless you, the Lord of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. And she's saying that back to him. Put your wing over me so that I can take refuge there, so that Naomi can take refuge there, so that we'll be protected and safe. This girl's boldness in expecting 
good puts me to shame. Somewhere in the last couple years, I stopped expecting God to do it. You know, we got, I, I can distinctly remember a point, I think it was this past, this past summer, when we were at about a quarter of a million dollars, 250000 and we're giving the bank $12,000, $13,000 a month, about 10000 of that at the time is going to principal. And I can remember praying, oh, Lord, please, you know, please get us out of debt. But, you know, it does, even if you do nothing, we'll pay it off in two years at $10,000 a month, so... So what the heck? Uh, publicly, you go to any meeting I am in, I am praying for the debt. I stopped praying personally that day. Because what the heck? I've been praying for a decade. God tells me I'm going to take care of it. It doesn't happen. God tells me now's the time we're going to pay off the debt. Yes! Here we are, years later. It still doesn't happen. I lost hope. I lost the confident expectation of good. Anybody ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Second book, Prince Caspian. Lucy's talking to Aslan, the character that represents Jesus, about all these terrible things that have happened, and he's telling her, peace, child, peace, I will take care of it. And she's, when, when, Aslan? And he says, soon, I will do it soon. And she says, when is soon? And Aslan says to her, I call all time soon. I forgot that. I forgot that I serve a God who calls all time soon. When are we paying off the mortgage, God? Oh, I will take care of that soon. And I call all time soon. I lost biblical hope. Now, okay. I've told you this before, but I'm always preaching to myself, right? And you all are here for a counseling session, and that is so kind of you to come because it's embarrassing to do this with no one out in the congregation. I've done it before. It feels silly. So thank you for coming to my personal therapy session. I really appreciate that. Um, this has got to be true for some of you as well. God wouldn't be poking me about this. If this were just me, he'd be poking me in other ways. If he's poking me in a sermon, some of you have given up hope as well. Some of you have been praying for things over and for so long. And God has said to you, perhaps, even, yes, I will do that. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen. And I'm pretty sure that if you're sitting here today, the reason I'm saying this and you're listening to this is because you've given up hope or you know some situation where that's happening or you're, you're, you're close you're going from biblical hope, a confident expectation of good, to English hope, a wish. Oh, that'd be great, but who knows? What, what, what have you given up on? What have you forgotten? What have you st where, where have you done what I did? I just stopped asking God privately. Again, publicly, I'm the pastor. This is my job. I got to set an example. Publicly, every time I pray for God, to take care of the mortgage. But I know in my heart, it's not gonna happen anytime soon because he calls all time soon. What have you given up on? What have you been praying and praying and praying? And scripture, in scripture, God says, I don't want anyone to perish. 
I want every single person on this planet to turn to me. And so I pray for the people I care about who don't know him, that they will turn to him. And they don't turn, and they don't turn, and they don't turn. And I'm like, what the heck, God? You want this and I want this. What's going on? I call all time soon. I pray to God fairly frequently. Because scripture says, we'll read it in Peter when we get back in there. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And I tell God, look, I get that to you a day is like a thousand years, but to me a day is like a day, and a thousand years is like a thousand years. So could we do this in one of my days instead of one of your days, please? And still, he does things in his own time because he knows what is right. Why didn't, he said he would pay it off. Why didn't we pay it off the first year? I don't know. Why didn't we pay it off the 10th year? I don't know. Why didn't we pay it off last summer? I don't know. But I do know that he's good. I know that he's a little smarter than I am at least. I know that he sees everything that happens in the universe, knows everything, exists always, everywhere, in all times. He probably knows what he's doing. But I give up because I don't see things happen. I lose hope. You know how often the scriptures tell us not to lose hope. Where have you lost hope? Where have you given up? Where do you need to be like Ruth? Because, wow, I need to be like Ruth. I can think of some places that I have given up on. That God has said, yep, this is going to happen. I'm going to do this. Here's what I want you to do. And then a decade later, two, three decades later, hasn't happened. This person's never become a Christian. This situation's never resolved itself. This person's never been healed. Over and over again, I I pray into things, and then I stop. Because it's hard. And because God's God's not moving as fast as I want. Where do you need to be like Ruth? Told you the first week, don't be like Naomi. Like see, see, see all the good things God is doing for you. Be like Boaz, be generous, disadvantage yourself for others. And this week I'm telling you, be like Ruth. Wow, swing for the fence. Go big. God put every star in the sky. Do you know? So two million, a lot of zeros after that. Do you know how many zeros there are after the number of stars in the sky? And he put every single one of them there. Scripture says they sing to him. Oh, I am looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> All of them. Again, we don't even have a number big enough. The, 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 you know, there's this billions of galaxies and every galaxy has billions of stars. Every time we put a new telescope, we see more. Power is not God's problem. He is not lacking in power. Money is not God's problem. Ability, oh yeah. If he wants it to happen, it will happen. But trust, faith, hope, that's what he wants from us. Where do you need to hope again this Christmas? Where do you need to start praying again? What if you stop praying about that you need to go back to God and start swinging for the fence Because there's some crazy stories in the Bible. God tells Abraham he's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham says to him, and this is a direct quote, no, you're not. That would be unjust, and you are the God of justice. 
There are righteous people in that city. If you destroy it, you're as bad as they are. What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? You're going to kill 50 righteous people because you're mad at all the rest of them. And God says, okay. 50 righteous people, I won't destroy it. And Abraham doesn't say thank you. (laughs) Abraham says, well, what's the difference between 50 and 45? Five people. You're going to make a big deal about five people? What do you find 45 people? Okay. 45 people, I won't destroy it. He bargains God down to the face-to-face to the Almighty. And God never says, whoa, hold on there, buddy. Where do you need to swing big? Where do you need to be bold? Where do you need to start praying again? Because, wow, I can think of some places in my life where I have given up and I need to start praying. So this is what we're going to do. I'm not going to pray for you at first. You're going to pray for you. We are going to take the next couple minutes, right, and swing big. Be like Ruth, right? I would have gone and asked for a job. Ruth goes and asks for an entire life for her, her mother-in-law, her unborn children, generations to come. She doesn't just ask to eat. She asks that he save the line of Elimelech. You know who Boaz's great, 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 grandson is, right? Like his line, wow, they don't just save the line of Elimelech. They save everyone, including us, when that descendant of Boaz, Jesus, is born, lives, dies, and is raised again. So we're going to take a few minutes. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be awkward. Got an awkward greeting. Now we have the awkward prayer time. You did outstanding with that last week, by the way. We're going to have another awkward prayer time. It's going to be awkward because it's just going to be quiet. Where do you need to go to God and swing big? Where do you need to start praying again? Where do you need to get up in his face and say, you said you would do this? Do it. Is today the day? If not, if not today, then tomorrow. Where do you need to hope? Confident expectation of good. You know, Jesus tells these parables that when you pray to God, wow, you go and you bang on his door. Tells a story about a guy banging on the door. The man in the house, he yells down from the window, stop, I'm in bed, leave me alone. Guy just keeps banging. Jesus says, he's not gonna come down and give you what you want because he's your friend. He's gonna come down because you are shameless. Because you are audacious in asking. So I want you to take the next couple minutes and I want you to be shameless and audacious. I want you to be like Ruth. I want you to ask God for the moon. Because if I was Ruth and I even got the guts to say this, wow, would I be wondering what was gonna happen next. And in my wildest dreams, I would not expect him to turn to me and say, Oh, the Lord bless you. That is so kind of you. Yes. Yes, I will do everything you ask. And more, have all this barley to take home. She gets everything she asks and more. So let's pray. You pray for yourselves. I'll pray for all of us in a couple minutes.
Oh, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for, for not believing that you would do what you said you would do. Forgive me for giving up, for losing hope. Forgive me for flipping the story that instead of remembering that you would do it, I started thinking, well, we'll get it done eventually, even if God does nothing more. Thank you. Thank you that you are kind and you are generous. Thank you that, that I know you are chuckling at my lack of faith. And you will be good to me again tomorrow. And you will keep your promises to me again, even though I didn't believe you would keep this one. Because that's who you are. You never say anything and then go back on your word. You never lie. You never forget. You never mistake. Thank you. I pray for my brothers and sisters, for everyone here who's listening to me, who has given up on you with something, who has prayed and prayed and prayed, and you didn't do it. And so they stopped. They stopped believing that you would. They stopped believing that you cared. Lord, I pray you would renew in us confidence in you. Not in us. Not that we'll get it done. That you are good. That everything you do is good. And when you wait, it is good that you wait. And when you act, it is good that you act. And when you act, nothing can thwart it. That's what you told Isaiah. When you speak, it goes out and it does exactly what you said. And nothing in this universe can stop that. Thank you that you are good and you are kind and you are gracious. Thank you for what Paul tells Timothy, that even when we are faithless to you, you are always faithless to us. You will never stop being faithful. You are a faithful God. Thank you. We are so, so grateful. I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I bless them with courage to continue to ask, to continue to ask even though it hasn't happened yet, that even though in our finite sense of time, you have not said yes. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I bless them with patience to wait on your timing because your timing is best. I readily admit, I don't always think that. But I know it's true. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I bless them with perseverance to continue to pray, to continue to knock, to continue just to bang on the door over and over and over again until suddenly, there you are. You open the door. Thank you. We are so, so grateful, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be at work in everyone who can hear me, that you would nudge us, that you would remind us, that you would prompt us, that we would do exactly what you told us to do. We would pray and never give up. And that we would be like Ruth. We would be audacious. Those are the stories you tell, Jesus. People who pray and are audacious. That, that, that we, would be, we would be big. We would ask for the moon. Thank you. Thank you that you are a God who loves to say yes. We are so grateful. Jesus, we pray all these things in your name because you are our God and we are your people. Amen.